The Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book One, Plan B Revised. Chapter 10, Kevin and the Carjackers. Martin nodded himself awake again. Sleeping sitting up was annoying that way, but it was useful. Rather than grumble, he appreciated the periodic wake-ups to keep the little fire going and to listen carefully. The night had been oddly quiet. After the rain stopped around one thirty, there was a stifling silence that seemed to absorb all sound. At other times, a faint car honk or a tire squeal acted like distant sonar pings from civilization. The world was still out there, even in the darkness of four in the morning. The dampness gave the night's cold a sharp edge. He added a few little sticks to the coals and blew on them. Cheerful flames sprang up, but he felt light-headed. Fatigue and the lack of decent sleep were starting to take its toll. Oh, I could sure go for a cup of coffee about now, he thought. Coffee? He remembered having packed away one of those little tubes of instant coffee. He reached into his backpack and felt his way into the little pen pockets inside the front zipper section. Ha! he said out loud, then shushed himself. Now for some hot water, he whispered. He tossed a few more sticks onto the fire, poured some of the rainwater he had collected into his aluminum water bottle. He raked the burning sticks and coals level and balanced the bottle on top of them, then raked a few more coals around it. After several minutes, steam was rising from the bottleneck. With his gloved hand, he moved the bottle to the ground and poured the little packet of powder in. He held the bottle under his nose and swirled it in circles to speed the mixing. It smelled heavenly. Susan stirred under her overcoat. "'Coffee?' she said in a hoarse voice. She sat up and wrapped her coat around herself. She scooted forward to sit very near the fire and warm her hands. "'Is that coffee?' "'Yeah, I forgot I had one of those little instant packs. I'm not a big fan of Starbucks, but they do make a good instant.' He took a long, loud sip, trying not to burn his tongue. Hot coffee on a cool, damp night was magical. Here, he offered her the bottle. Use a glove, though. It's kind of hot. Susan savored the smell for a while, then sipped. Oh, that tastes so good. The gnawing emptiness in Martin's stomach twisted a little tighter. I'm really hungry this morning, he said. I didn't notice so much yesterday. Maybe we were too busy. Me too. Is there any of that cheese left? A little. I might as well finish it off. Martin pulled out the plastic bag and cut the little square in half. Seeing the multi-tool knife made Susan cringe. Um, Martin? He looked up, chewing his little square of cheese. He handed her the other half. Uh, about last night. She turned her cheese over and over in her fingers as she stared at the fire. There's something I need to say. Martin could feel his shoulders slump. He had hoped that her returning the multi-tool was a sign that all was forgiven. Apparently not. His stupidity was not water under the bridge. Look, he said, I didn't mean for any of that to happen. I would never... Her sad, puzzled expression shut him down. That look was becoming kryptonite. It made him feel powerless. What did it mean? Was she still frightened? Was she still upset at him? How does a guy go about repairing such damage? A faint crunch sound interrupted his jumbled thoughts. 
He held a finger up to his lips. Silence. Susan was about to speak when a faint scraping sound came from the direction of the river. She turned her head quickly. You heard it too, Martin whispered. She nodded. Came from up there. The two of them sat motionless, concentrating on the velvet silence for anything else. I think it's footsteps, Martin whispered. Someone is walking across the bridge. Martin gently scooped handfuls of soil and poured them on the fire. Inky blackness joined the silence. Amid the faint crunches and scrapes was the murmur of voices being kept low. Martin reached out to touch Susan. She jumped. I'm going to go up and check it out, he whispered softly. As quietly as you can, get ready to go. We might have to leave fast. Be careful, she whispered back. Martin's several trips to check on his rain-gatherer had made him familiar with the bushes and trees along the abutment. He moved steadily, but carefully, to avoid making noise. He had grumbled about the rain yesterday, but was thankful for it now. The rain softened up all of the fallen leaves, so that even he could move with Indian-like stealth on a carpet of wet leaves. He felt his way up the embankment. The night was still too black to see. There was no distant orange glow on the horizon from nearby towns and cities. He could feel the slope of the embankment getting shallower, so he knew he was getting near the shoulder of the road. The air was cold. He pulled his coat collar up and stocking cap down. When the leafy scrub gave way to grasses, he stopped to listen. The murmuring and occasional crunching was, perhaps, twenty yards to his left and coming closer. Martin pulled back into the scrub and slowly laid on the ground. The voices were getting clearer. When we were in Kunar, we covered ten times this much territory in like half an hour. This is total foobar, said one voice in a slightly vocalized whisper. I know, but they don't want us going all black on fuel, so we walk, said the second. The first voice grumbled. Their quiet footsteps had a steady, if casual, cadence. Martin was puzzled that the two were walking at such a normal gait in pitch blackness. He could see no flashlight beams, not even red ones. Then a harsh chill ran up his spine. Night vision. They could see him, even if he couldn't see anything. If they had heat-sensing equipment, there would be no hiding. He would glow like a man-shaped ember among the bushes. His eyes had been away from the fire long enough that he could make out a faint tree line across the highway. The sky was still overcast, but there must have been a moon above it. Out of the corner of his eye he glimpsed movement. Two shapes loomed up above the tree line. Every muscle in his body was tense. "'It's freaking cold out here, man,' said voice one. "'I hear you. I want a cup of coffee so bad I can smell it. Can you believe that?' Martin's heart sank. They smelled his coffee. He could just make out faint slivers of green glow in the moving dark shapes, like momentary crescent moons. They did have night vision goggles. The glow leaked around the eye cups as they walked. Martin's body tensed to flee. Maybe he could rush down the hill faster than they could. But then what? He told himself to freeze completely. Don't go all complaining when we get back, chided voice two. 
This assignment is pretty sweet, actually. Yeah, conceded voice one. Better to be keeping this stupid bridge empty than breaking heads in town. The dark shapes floated past Martin. He still dared not move, but felt some relief. Apparently they had Gen 2 or Gen 3 devices, but not Fleur. He was glad, but stayed frozen, only allowing himself the shallowest of breaths. The last thing he needed was a gasp or the snap of a twig. Ah, only a couple hundred yards and we'll be out of this cold. I can see my sweet Tina up ahead. Man, that is such a lame name for a Humvee. Should be something cool like Rasputin or, or Spartacus. Voice one grumbled something Martin couldn't make out. Whatever, conceded voice two. We'll take some sips and check the area again at dawn. The voices grew faint and inarticulate as they walked farther away. Martin slowly shrank back down the embankment, making sure he snapped no twigs. Beneath the bridge, everything was a solid mass of darkness again. Susan? Martin whispered. Over here, she whispered back. Who was it? A couple of soldiers, I think, he whispered and squatted down near where her voice came from. They said they'd be back at dawn, so we'd better pack up and go. I tried to pack, she said, but it's, it's too dark. Martin fished for his little red LED flashlight. The soft red glow was just enough to see, but not to carry any distance. Susan held the light while Martin dismantled the lean-to. A flash of reflected white glow from above lit up the foliage around them. They both froze. A searchlight slowly swept across the southbound bridge, then the northbound. It winked off. Total blackness returned. That must have been the soldiers, Martin whispered. Sounds like they have a Humvee parked up the road, probably near the interchange. Susan resumed tightening up her bundles. Martin stuffed the mylar and paracord into his bag. He stomped on the earth-covered fire pit. Are you ready? he asked. Before she could answer, they heard a crackling and a rustling coming from the woods. The soldiers? Susan whispered very softly. I don't think so. The sounds were too clumsy and loud to have been the soldiers. Martin worried that it could be rogue criminal types or a desperate scavenger. I'd better go check it out. But you should quietly take your bag over to the far bridge, come up on the embankment, and wait behind the guardrail. If I don't come back... What do you mean if you don't come back? Her voice sounded scared. You're coming back. It could be nothing, he said. Then I'll be back. But maybe it is something. If you hear me shout anything, anything at all, get across the bridge as fast as you can. I won't go without you, she protested. If I shout, you'll have to. That'll mean it's bad enough, and I don't want you anywhere near it. But, no buts, here's the map. Turn right on the road just after the other side of the river. This 495 bridge goes over it. Follow it up to the streets with the red lines. That'll take you up through Salem. Keep following the red lines to my house. Susan was about to protest again when more cracking of branches interrupted. Okay, Martin whispered. Go. He turned and threaded his way through the brush. He had his little multi-tool knife in his hand. The cracking and snapping of twigs came from deeper into the woods beside the embankment. Whatever it was, it was moving toward the highway. 
Martin wondered if a deer or a moose would make that much noise. Martin moved within ten yards of the noisemaker, then followed it in parallel. Occasional grumbles and swearing accompanied the louder cracks. It was a man. It sounded like he tripped a few times. Martin could just make out the dark mass of a man pushing through the brush up to the embankment. Figuring the clumsy man was no threat, Martin was content to parallel his course as far as the edge of the highway shoulder and let him go his way. He might have, had Martin not backed into a bush and broke a branch. What? Who's there? The man demanded in a hoarse whisper. Martin did not respond. I heard you. I know you're out there. Don't bother mugging me. I been hit already. I got nothing left. Martin still did not respond. I'm warning you, said the man. I'll fight back. Just then, the searchlight flashed on. The beam started on the southbound bridge and began sweeping toward them. The backlit glow silhouetted the clumsy man. He was tall, heavy-set, and disheveled. He had a hunk of a tree branch in his hand as a club. Get down, said Martin. The man crouched and backed into the brush before the beam swept past them. What was that? the big man asked. National Guard, I think, Martin half-whispered. They're supposed to keep people off the highway. Well, who are you? demanded the man. Name's Martin. I'm not a mugger, just a guy trying to get home. The light swung around and scanned the two bridges on the other side of the river loop. If you're not a mugger, why are you hiding from them? Kevin said in an accusing tone. Because I've heard there's a curfew, and I don't want to get stuck in some detention camp while they sort things out. Curfew? National Guard? What the heck is going on here? Not sure. Governor Baylock is implementing some emergency procedures or something. I don't want any part of it. I just want to get home. Me too, said the man. Kevin Dixon's the name. I've been trying to get home to Salem for two days. We're headed up through Salem, too, but we're going farther up. Martin was not about to be specific. Great. I got kind of turned around tonight. I thought I was getting close to Lawrence when I saw that light. This isn't Lawrence. Where the heck are we? We're on 495, between Lawrence and Haverhill. So you know which way to go? I've got a map, yes. Could I come with you? I, I'm really lost without my GPS, said Kevin. Safety in numbers, too, and all that, uh, you know. Martin was reluctant. Kevin was a total stranger. He could be a mugger himself, though there was a sincere fear in his voice when he thought Martin was an attacker. I don't blame you for being careful, Kevin said. Can't be too careful these days. Martin agreed with him there. If it were just himself alone, he might travel with a stranger and stay wary. But what about Susan? Martin was feeling protective. Still, these were dangerous times. He and Susan had already seen some of the ugly side of humanity. Perhaps a larger group would help. Okay, said Kevin. I can tell you're not keen on it. But I really don't want to keep traveling alone. Tell you what, what if I promise to give you a ride up to wherever you're going, huh? My wife's car will be at my house. I'll drive you home. What do you say? A ride the rest of the way was tempting. Their progress had been frustratingly slow. Yet this could just be a variation on foxhole conversion. Easily promised, seldom delivered. 
Martin had no contractual leverage. Ah, oh, come on, pleaded Kevin. The prospect of saving many hours of walking was too hard to pass up. Martin knew he would have to be wary of this Kevin, keeping an eye on him at all times. All right, we're leaving now. You can travel with us if you want, Martin whispered. Follow me. Martin moved quietly down the embankment, slipping past bushes and saplings. Kevin followed noisily, breaking branches and cursing under his breath. Martin led him to the southbound bridge, where he hoped that Susan was waiting. He turned to Kevin. You stay here while I go up and explain that you'll be coming with us. Kevin agreed. Martin moved under the bridges and up the far embankment, a bit less silently than before. Susan? he whispered. I'm here, she replied. Who's that with you? They make an awful lot of noise. It's just one guy. His name is Kevin, and yes, he's noisy. He said he's traveling up to his home in Salem. Said he'd give us a ride home once we got to his house. She didn't reply for a long time. Martin guessed that she was thinking the same things he had. I don't like it very much, she said. But a ride is tempting. Agreed. One of us should keep an eye on him at all times, though. We have to be careful. I'll go get him. The three of them squatted in the brush near the edge of the bridge railing. Dawn was coming slowly. The tree line was a distinct black edge against a dark gray sky. The Humvee's searchlight split the darkness again. This was what Martin was waiting for. The light swept the southbound bridge, then the northbound. It swung 180 degrees to scan the other two bridges leading toward Haverhill. Now! Martin burst out from the brush, over the guardrail. He hunched over, staying as close to the concrete side rail as he could, pulling the roller bag. Susan followed with his backpack. Kevin lumbered along behind them awkwardly with his tree branch. Martin had driven across that bridge many times in the past. It took only a few seconds. Running across seemed to take forever. The bridge felt infinitely long. All three were out of breath and only making a fast walking pace by the time they reached the other side. They climbed over the guardrail and sat for a few minutes in the bushes. They were panting and out of breath. Martin shushed them. He wanted to listen for voices or a Humvee starting up. It was hard to tell between his own heavy breathing and Kevin's wheezing. Nonetheless, the guardsmen did not appear to be moving. Once they had caught their breath, they moved down the embankment. They all made a fair amount of noise navigating through the unfamiliar brush. They stepped out onto the lot of a used car dealer. Martin stopped to listen again before taking to the road. All seemed very quiet. A dim gray light of dawn was growing. I really appreciate you guys letting me come with you, said Kevin. These past two days have been hell, I tell you. In the growing light, Martin could see that Kevin was a well-fed man in jeans and a sport coat. He was dirty and had been wet. You guys got any food? Kevin asked. I haven't eaten in two days. Sorry, we ate the last of our food this morning, said Martin. Dang, got some water? I'm real thirsty, too. Martin was reluctant, but their water jugs weren't hidden. Here, he handed Kevin one of their half-gallon jugs. Kevin began guzzling as if he intended to down the entire half-gallon. Martin grabbed it away. Hey, I said some water, not all of it. Oh, sorry, I haven't had anything to drink either. 
So where are you coming from, Kevin? Martin asked, hoping to get Kevin thinking about something other than his privations and appetite. Beverly, my company's headquartered in Cummings Park there. I'm president of Optilux Worldwide, he said with a proud tone. I've never heard of Optilux, Martin said. What's that? Oh, no, we are the premier interagency infrastructure negotiation and replacement specialists, world-class specialists, he added. What does all that mean? Susan asked. Kevin went on to explain, at some length, despite all of the trendy buzzwords, Optilux appeared to Martin to be a broker for other people's excess inventory. They didn't actually make anything or even sell anything. They arranged for someone else to buy someone else's excess goods. They were an aftermarket middleman. This was clearly a job that would not exist when the economy stalled for lack of power. I was in my corner office on Monday, Kevin began, when the lights went out. Phones were dead, too. I kept working my accounts until I couldn't get a cell line no more. I sent Carol, my receptionist, home, and Don, my sales guy. There's only three people to Optilux Worldwide, Martin thought. Pretty small world. So I was trying to get home, but traffic was horrendous. I had to stop for gas for my caddy. But the stations weren't working. I ran out of gas right there in line. Can you believe it? Nothing I could do, so I walked to the commuter rail station. Figured I'd go back down into town and come out on the Haverhill line to Lawrence. My wife could come get me from there. But the trains weren't running, Martin said. No, Kevin sounded outraged. Can you believe it? Of course, I don't ride the trains. They're more for the blue-collar types. But just when I needed them stinking trains, they don't work. Well, I knew Carol lived up in Middleton, so I started walking up there. I pay her a pretty darn good wage for what she does. I was going to have her drive me home. She owed me that for sure. Martin and Susan exchanged looks. They pitied Carol. But I didn't even get that far. While I was walking along, minding my own business, these three punks in hooded sweatshirts come up beside me and demanded my wallet. Well, I told them there ain't no way, and I pushed one of them away. Blindsided me, I tell you. Cheap shots. While I was down, they were kicking me, too. I'm sorry, Kevin, said Susan. Yeah, well, thanks, but they got my wallet. I had over two hundred bucks in there. Got my Rolex, too. Ha! But the laugh's on them, Kevin snorted. It wasn't a real Rolex. <laughs> he had a good laugh, though Martin wasn't sure who the joke was on. Did they leave after they took your things? Susan asked. I told them punks they better not mess with me again. Should have seen them run off. Lowlifes, all cowards. But that wasn't the worst of it. What really galled me was that the cops wouldn't do a blasted thing about it. Not doing their jobs. When I got up to 95, there was all kinds of cops around. I tried telling them that I got mugged and described the punks. Cops didn't care. They weren't going to make a report or do anything. Can you believe it? I mean, what do we pay these jerk salaries for, anyhow? That was yesterday, Martin observed. What did you do for shelter last night, when it rained? Kevin flailed his arms in exasperation. Oh, that was insult to injury, I tell you. I tried pounding on people's doors for them to let me in. No one would so much as answer the door. 
I knew they were home, too. I could see candles inside. People are so rude sometimes. Martin thought Kevin was lucky to be alive. In Massachusetts, guns were zealously prohibited. It was less likely that one of those homeowners would have owned a gun. But if they had, they might have shot a big, loud stranger pounding on the door in the night. So it started to rain harder, Kevin continued. I had to do something. I found cardboard boxes behind this 7-Eleven. Uh, they didn't help too much. I still got wet. Didn't sleep either. Then the rain stopped. I headed out again. I thought I was coming up on Lawrence, but there's nothing here but woods. No, you came up between Lawrence and Haverhill, Martin said. I could have swore, but like I said, I usually use my GPS. Had to leave that in my caddy. Well, anyway, I was coming up through them woods and I saw a light. I figured it was help of some kind, so I kept going that way. What about you, Martin? Where are you and the missus headed? We're going a bit further north. Actually, Susan isn't my wife. She's just a friend who needs a place to stay. Kevin glanced at Martin's wedding ring, then at Susan. Then he got a wide, knowing grin. Oh, I gotcha, he winked. Pretty sweet deal, eh? Not so bad traveling with your own. Kevin! Martin snapped. Kevin evidently saw the anger in Martin's face. The sophomoric grin dropped. Martin wanted very badly to punch that smug locker-room humor face. His fists were clenched and his face felt hot. Kevin was a much bigger man, but Martin didn't care. Big men can still hurt, and it seemed sometimes they should. Then Martin remembered the promised ride. So he tried to dial things back and keep it civil. It was not easy to dissipate a rage. The lady might take that the wrong way, Martin said carefully through clenched teeth. Oh, uh, sorry, Kevin glanced at Susan. Oh, I, I didn't mean anything. You did too, you big dolt, Martin thought. He imagined knocking Kevin over and sitting on his chest and pummeling his head. Apology accepted, Kevin. Susan said graciously. She also knew when to change the subject. So where do you live in Salem? Is it a nice house? She asked brightly. Oh, yeah, real nice. Only the best, you know. Lakefront property. Kevin was more comfortable boasting. Martin mouthed a thank you to Susan behind Kevin's back. She smiled. He hoped he had not ruined their ride. Kevin rambled about his exclusive neighborhood and how he got such a good deal on one of the primo lots because he knew this guy. Martin was unable to pretend to be interested. He busied himself planning where he might tell Kevin to drop them off that would be near enough to reduce walking, yet not so close as to reveal where he actually lived. After a few more sparse suburban blocks, Martin got out his map and showed it to Kevin. So, which way to your house? We're right here. If we go up this way, we'd pick up 97. We could go in towards Salem. Nah, Kevin turned his head and squinted at the map. That would bring us up on the wrong side of my lake. Long way around, and I'm sick and tired of walking. If we could get on this road over here, he pointed at the map, it would bring us up to the south entrance road. Martin studied the map. There aren't many streets going up that way. Looks like we'll have to go a bit further, and then follow this one up and over. In the gray morning light, the houses along the narrow winding streets looked normal enough. Martin wondered why they saw no one outside, although he thought he caught a glimpse of someone peering out a window but quickly closing the curtains, or a head disappearing behind a corner. 
Perhaps large strangers had been banging on their doors in the night, too. Once they had turned left, onto the road that Kevin indicated, the houses were fewer and farther between. Martin noticed that they hadn't seen any cars on the roads yet. Had people finally realized that gas was hard to come by? Perhaps they also realized there was no work to drive to, and that stores were equally fruitless destinations. He was about to point out the lack of traffic when he spotted a car crest a low rise, perhaps a half mile ahead. Hey, look, he said, that's the first car I've seen today. As he spoke, two men stepped out of the line of trees ahead of them. They moved into the road, their backs toward Martin's group. Martin did not like the fact that he hadn't seen them earlier. He vowed to be more vigilant. The two men waved their arms to flag down the approaching driver. Standing in the middle of the road made them impossible not to notice. "'I don't have a good feeling about this,' Susan said quietly. "'Me either,' the three stopped and watched. The driver stopped. The hooded man on the right spoke to the driver. Was he asking for a ride? Suddenly the man reached through the open window, apparently opening the door. He pulled the driver out. It was a thin man with gray hair. The other man pulled out the passenger.' a woman with short gray hair. Martin, Susan, and Kevin stood stunned at the sudden carjacking in progress fifty yards ahead of them. The second man clubbed the woman. She fell into the brush beside the road. The first carjacker sat straddled across the old man, beating him in the head over and over with a savage energy. The whole event was over in moments. The second carjacker shouted something to his cohort and pointed at Martin, Susan, and Kevin. The carjacker started walking toward them. Martin's mind quickly assessed the situation. There were two attackers, versus him and Kevin. Even-ish, but not great. They might have unseen weapons. He had his little knife. They were clearly brutal. To stay and fight them could go either way, but it could be bad. Then he thought of Susan. She said she wasn't a fighter. If it did go badly, Susan would be left alone with them. That was unacceptable. Quick, Martin said. Back this way. They needed to put distance between them and the threat. He turned, grabbed the roller bag, and ran. The other two followed. Better to avoid a fight if the stakes are too high, he told his inner John Wayne. The carjackers consulted each other for a moment, then gave chase. Martin turned right up a subdivision road. It was a dead-end loop, but offered more cover than a lone road with grassy meadows on both sides. The first few houses he passed offered little concealment, Wide yards, no trees. A quick glance behind showed that the two carjackers were running up the street after them. This way, Martin shouted back to Susan. He veered left, up a curving driveway. No, shouted Kevin. This way! And he kept running up the street. Martin ran behind the first house, looking for anything to give a tactical advantage. The first house had a small raised deck with a single stair. It would be more defensible, but not if their pursuers had guns. Come on, he said back to Susan. They ran across the backyard through a line of shrubs. Did they just kill those people? She asked, out of breath. I don't know, but it sure looked like it. A piercing scream froze Martin in his tracks. Martin and Susan looked at each other, as if to confirm that they actually heard what they did. Kevin? Martin whispered. It sounded like the shriek Martin sometimes heard on summer nights when an owl caught a rabbit. Unfreezing, Martin saw that the second house had a utility shed built under its deck. The doors were open. He ran toward it. They couldn't outrun the two carjackers. 
even if they abandoned their loads. The carjackers were young and rested. Martin and Susan were not. It was dark inside the shed. A lawnmower sat in the middle on a dirt floor. Rakes, hoses, and sprinklers lined the walls. Quick, he whispered. Up against the wall. Stay out of sight. He pressed himself up against the short wall beside one door. Susan did the same on the other side. They would be hidden from a quick glance into the shed. He tried to slow down his breathing. They needed to be very quiet. He could hear the carjackers shouting to one another. They went back there. No, no, I saw him run the other way. The fact that they couldn't agree gave Martin some hope that their route had not been seen. Well, I'm looking back here. You check that other house up there. We can't let him get away. Seconds seemed to take hours. Martin strained his hearing for some clue of their positions. He stopped breathing altogether when the doorway darkened. He glanced down. Wheel prints. The roller bag left fresh wheel prints in the dirt floor. The carjacker jumped around the corner, his face within inches of Martin's. Gotcha!